Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. A couple months back, I got a message from a longtime friend who now lives an hour and a half north of Eau Claire, a message about some inspirational work being done in her area advocating for immigrant families. So I finally got around to talking to Kelly Lundin. It's not like there aren't plenty of other reasons to connect and reconnect with Kelly. I first worked with her on the formation of Just Peace from the Chippewa Valley back in 2001. And in 2007, I interviewed her after her work in Colombia, South America, doing accompaniment piecework there as part of the International Peace Observatory. But her work recently, back in Wisconsin, has been as a mother of three and as staff for Nuke Watch, working for a nuclear-free future since 1979. The folks at Nuke Watch have been sentinels for the safety, well-being, and future of our country by their investigation of and action on nuclear weapons and nuclear power in the USA. Kelly Lundin joins me via Skype from the offices of Nuke Watch in Luck, Wisconsin. Kelly, how amazing to have you back again after 12 years for Spirit in Action. Thank you. It's actually been 13 years. It's actually 12 and a half. We're both right. Okay. Because I interviewed you back in June of 2007, and that was kind of a retrospective to your visit, your time working with the International Peace Observatory in Columbia. Mm-hmm. Being 12 and a half years in the past, how do you feel about that from this distance? I would say it's an experience. I always wanted to do something like that, live abroad and do something that I felt could be helpful. I'm glad I did it, and I still feel a strong connection to the people in Colombia that I worked with. That I was there for three years, and the war, even though it ended officially, it's still going on. Right now they have a president that was good friends with President Uribe, who was president back when I was there. President Uribe worked very closely, actually, in establishing certain groups of paramilitaries that were working with the government, army, military, to assassinate human rights leaders, peasant leaders, Afro-Colombian leaders. And that's still going on, even though they've had a peace agreement. So I would say one of the big things that I took from that experience was, even though I always wanted to work for peace, it really hammered in the importance of justice because I was able to meet people who had lost family members. I knew people who were killed while I was there. And you understand why somebody might want to join a guerrilla group, for example, if their family member was just killed by a paramilitary. And just the effects, the lifelong effects that war leaves and how long it takes for a country to leave war even though the war is technically and officially over. Does the International Peace Observatory, does that continue? No, that group was formed in Colombia to do accompaniment, somewhat similar to what Nonviolent Peace Force does, but that group does not exist anymore. Since then, you've come back to the U.S. amongst uh, the riches that have fallen into or maybe out of your lap are three children. 
I understand you did them all with home births. And in the U.S., that is an unusual thing. Could you say a little bit about going from living, doing accompaniment to protect people nonviolently in Columbia to coming back and having three children and living in small town Wisconsin? I would say they're very separate parts of my life, but very intimate and necessary parts of my life. I always thought I was not going to have children because, especially living in the United States, we are some of the largest consumers, polluters on this earth. But there was something in my body that was just not agreeing with my mind. So, yes, now I have three children. I did home births for all three of them. There's a lot of fear around birth in the United States especially, and we've laid all of our body's knowledge in the hands of, we've given that power away to doctors, thinking that we don't have the power to do it, but that's what our bodies are before. I actually lost a baby. My first baby I lost, but I still decided that I wanted to do home births. My last one I actually, after I'd had a little practice, that my last one I caught in my own hands as he was born. <laughs> That's a wonderful catch. (laughs) (laughs) I'm assuming you found, as I did, I'd always liked kids. I wasn't real excited at the idea of 24-7. But I found when my son came out, I discovered a type of love that I hadn't known existed before. Did you have some experience like that? Having this material presence in front of you that is so tightly tied to you, it's not just like liking or loving someone as a romantic partner or as part of your parents, brothers, sisters. There's this other experience that I had of a different kind of love. I don't know what we call it in English besides love, parental love, I don't know. Absolutely. There was nothing that I could compare in my life that I'd felt. So even though I feel a strong, I'm very compelled to do work for creating a better world out of my love for humanity. My love for my children is very, very different. Anyway, you came back to the USA from Colombia. Part of your time was spent down working with the Catholic Worker House, Casa Maria, down in Milwaukee. And now you're living in small town Wisconsin. Was that a particularly conscious choice? What led you back to small town as opposed to big cities, which is where things are happening? And when you're a peace worker and a justice worker in the way that Kelly Lundin is, why small town USA? I have my children. I want them to be close to their family, not just our immediate family. Right now, I live six blocks from the hospital I was born in. I'm close to my parents and my sister. So I'm back to my roots in Shell Lake, Wisconsin, a town of 1,300 people. Also, I feel like I'm kind of in Trump country here. But there are a lot of people doing a lot of good work. There are a lot of wonderful people in my area. And it also reminds me of who I need to remember to get along with. Who am I going to be speaking to? Whose mind am I trying to change? And whose heart am I trying to change? Or whose heart am I trying to reach? Because everybody has a heart. And even though I don't have the opportunity to be part of the mass marches frequently and meetings and with the organizations in bigger cities, there's still a lot of space for work to be done here. There's a lot of poverty here. There are a lot of issues that uh, need to be worked on in this area, too. One of the reasons that it works to be there is because of your connection with Nuke Watch, which we're going to talk about shortly. 
I think some people figure that if you're living out in, as you called it, Trump country, out in the rural areas where he's more popular overall than he is in the larger cities of Wisconsin, I think you get to know who you connect with deeply more easily. In some ways, I think that that makes community more powerful rather than more dilute. In a big city, you can choose from so many things, people's relationships, that I think that community is often dilute. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I definitely agree. Here, you have somebody you're accountable to. You can't just change who you are from day to day, and no one will care. Here, everyone cares and everyone notices. (laughs) So you have to watch what you're doing and answer to people, answer to the people who your neighbors, your cousins, (laughs) everybody. How many of your best friends are strong Trump supporters? Uh, None. (laughs) Except for my dad. Oh. And how does that go, that discussion? I think it's really important because at a time when our country is so divided, and I actually think there could end up being a civil war, Mm -hmm. it's really important to be able to retain the ties that unite us. Mm -hmm. So how does that go for you? Well, a lot of it goes back to our values. And even though people will say, talk about family values or American values, but really those values are pretty widely shared. And something we can all agree on, even though we don't necessarily agree on the specific solutions to problems that we have that we're looking at in in our area or in our cities or in our world. Can you talk to your dad about political situations, about your work with Nuke Watch or in general, the issues that are important to you? Yes. Every political issue I work on, I always try to figure out how I will frame it when I'm going to talk to my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So he's a good mirror for me. That's wonderful. Well, the reason that I got in touch with you specifically, I mean, I always look forward to the little contact that we had. I consider you a friend, and I'm aware that you're out there, and I want to reach out, and I'd love to visit with you, but it is hard to juggle everything in our lives. The thing that finally got me off my butt to reach out and talk to you was a posting that you shared about a movie that was being shown in Barron, Wisconsin. Barron County, Wisconsin, happens to have a surprisingly high Somali settlement in that rural area. And people think of refugees coming into our cities, which certainly they do. Could you talk a little bit about the Somali representation in that area in Barron County? Yeah, they were an offshoot of the group that came into the Twin Cities. They are primarily employed at Genio Turkey Store. There are several hundred. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think in the video it said there were something like 500 or so, I think, currently. I, they mapped the growth of the population over the years. But I, I think it's over 500, which for such a small town, that's really a, a high percentage. Yeah, it is a high percentage of the community of Barron, of the town of Barron, where they're living and employed and going to school. And so it's been a big change for this community, but the community of Barron has adapted well. In fact, in the last city council election, there were two Somali people who were candidates for city council. So they're a very important part of their community and contributing to their community, not only economically, but obviously culturally. 
one of the things that I did not even know about is an issue that they have with bringing their family members to the United States to join them. And so this group, Immigrant Advocates of Barron County, started over a year ago with the mission to see what we can do to help reunite these families. About half of our members are Somali, and they have told us about the problems they've had starting under Obama with trying to bring their families here to join them because they, when they originally were given their visas to come to the United States, a lot of times it's very last minute. They say, here's your visa. You can go tomorrow. Don't worry. Your children can join you in six months. And that's the story we hear over and over. But that's been four years ago, five years ago, or more. Meanwhile, we have one member of the household here trying to establish their home save up some money. One member of our group actually had already purchased his minivan awaiting his family, and now he's had this minivan for over a year, and his family's nowhere in sight. So we're trying to raise awareness about that situation, because I know as a mother, (laughs) if that was my situation, I would want to have all the help I could get. And I think that's something that everybody here can understand, too. If you have somebody that you love, you don't want them half a world away. And if there's some artificial policy that's preventing that, you want that to change. So the policies regarding immigration have changed a lot, obviously, under Trump and made it worse, including the travel ban has made it even slower for the visas to be processed. And there's a movie that was assembled just showing you the faces, the people. They get to talk about their situation and, you know, being separated from your kids, your wife, your husband for five years or nine years in one case that is talked about in the video is really a big deal. I'm going to attach a link so people can find their way to that video called Somali separation stories in Barron, Wisconsin. You'll learn a little bit more about how these theoretical policies, these policies at a national level hit real people on the ground in even small town Wisconsin. It's a ghastly effect, actually. And it's all based on fear of an imaginary enemy. There are real enemies, certainly in the world. But this is about conjuring everyone into an enemy because we're so afraid. And so I, I want to thank you, Kelly, for passing that link on to me so that I could learn a little bit more about what's happening right here in Wisconsin. I think it's happening all over the U.S. where this program's listened to. I'm sure out in California there's effects in, in Massachusetts or down in Houston, Texas, and over in Arizona and New Mexico. All these places where this program is heard people are being affected by this national policy, which does not fit the people that they're seeing face to face. I will mention that there is a website for this group, immigrantadvocatesbarroncounty.com is the website for that. But look on northernspiritradio.org and you'll find a link so you don't have to remember all of those other words. But let's get talking about the work that you do specifically, Kelly, and that is with Nuquatch. Now, I have in the past interviewed people who've been active with working with Nuquatch. Could you explain to our listeners what Nuquatch is? Nuquatch is an organization dedicated to abolition of nuclear weapons and anything nuclear. 
Nuclear weapons have been the primary focus of a lot of anti-nuclear organizations. Um, We also see the very dangerous, lethal problems with anything related to nuclear power, radioactive waste. Nukewatch has been around for 40 years doing education and action. Right now we have a newsletter that comes out quarterly that updates around all the nuclear issues. We've also previously done things like truck watch, train watch, which are campaigns, nationwide campaigns to watch where radioactive waste is being transported and educate about the dangers of radioactive waste. Well, Kelly, I have been following your exploits. I know you put an address label on the copy of Nuke Watch quarterly that comes to me here in Eau Claire. I have a feeling that there's people probably all over the nation who are following Nuke Watch. How wide is your mailing list? It's over 2,000 people around the United States and some internationally also. How did these people get connected up with you? What are the concerns that unite people into Nuke Watch's work? So most of the people that have come in contact with us have been through actions. One of our first publications was about the 1,000 land-based nuclear missile silos in the heartlands of the United States. Nukewatch volunteers went out and physically visited every single one of these nuclear missile silo sites and created a map. This is way before Google. We were the first ones to create this map of where all these 1,000 nuclear missiles were located with the purpose of having a way for activists to go out and, first of all, know what's there because it looks like a lot of it's, it's in the middle of ranches, it's next to schools. You don't know it's there. But they created the map so that activists can go out and protest these sites. So we met a lot of people during that campaign. And just as an update, the 1,000 land-based missiles has now been reduced to 450 land-based missiles in the United States. So that's a, a great victory. We've also done the truck watch and train watch of radioactive waste shipments. We've been very closely tied with the Plowshares Movement, which is a global movement to symbolically disarm nuclear weapons to show where the nuclear weapons are and show the world that we do not agree with this. So we've worked closely with plowshares activists. We've also recently been working closer with more groups uh, working to oppose radioactive waste transportation. We've met most of our closest supporters through actions or through tours uh, when we give tours to talk about the work we're doing or the dangers of nuclear weapons. And do you do the touring speaking, or is this John LaForge, or who are the folks who are most likely to be out touring speaking about the work of Nuke Watch? Mostly it's John LaForge. And the information that goes in your Nuke Watch quarterly, it's really wide-ranging. I actually haven't personally firmly decided how I feel about nuclear power. I am concerned about it. I know that the waste is ongoing and threatening, and all it takes is one accident, and the consequences are absolutely horrific. I did have a guest on, Karen Street is her name, who is scientifically oriented, and she says, for the same reason that climate change should be our number one concern, Nuclear power is an important element of preventing this greater danger of climate change. 
That's her scientific estimation on this. She was a science teacher. She's not a physicist, per se, or anything like that. But she says that the same scientists that are responsible for the international estimation of the dangers of climate change, those same scientists will say that overall, or in most cases, or almost you know, 99.9% nuclear power is safe. That's not the point of view that perhaps you and I have, but that is what those scientists are saying. And so her point is, if we trust the scientists, then why don't we trust the scientists? If we trust them on climate change, but then we say we're going to ignore your opinion on this. So I highly recommend people to listen to that interview with Karen Street on northernspiritradio.org. But quarterly, I get information that I think updates what Karen has said, information that has been suppressed, ignored about nuclear power. But also, as you've said already, Kelly, it's about nuclear weapons, which is a separate category. Karen, by the way, is completely opposed to nuclear weapons as well. She recognized the dangers of nuclear energy in terms of what can happen with weapons. She's not Pollyannish in her views at all. Just looking at the current issue of the NukeWatch Quarterly, and again, by the way, folks, the website is nukewatchinfo.org. That's the website you'll find up and you can connect up. And if you post something there, I'm sure Kelly and John LaForge will be getting back to you. Front page of NukeWatch Quarterly for the winter issue of 2019-20 says, On Navajo Nations, uranium poisoning found generations after mine closure. Since you wrote the article, I'm assuming you can talk about that. Yes, I'd actually like to go back to your previous point. I'm really glad you brought up climate change and nuclear power because it's really misunderstood. There are actually some arguments saying that nuclear power has been propped up by the nuclear weapons industry and has been created for the purpose of perpetuating the nuclear weapons because it makes it look like nuclear is acceptable. They call it atoms for peace. It's sad to hear people like Karen Street saying that nuclear power is a potential solution to our climate crisis because starting with the uranium mines all the way to the radioactive waste, nuclear power kills. It's death. You know, as you say in the article you referred to, On Navajo Nation, uranium poisoning found generations after mine closures. There hasn't been a mine, a uranium mine, operating for a couple decades, yet it's still poisoning babies, uh, pregnant women who are the most vulnerable. If we look at nuclear power in the context of climate change, let's just look at Europe last summer. There were immense heat waves. What happens to the nuclear power plants? They have to shut down. Nuclear power cannot tolerate climate change. The reactors cannot function in the context of climate change because they overheat. The other thing about bringing nuclear power into the mix is currently nuclear power generates about 6% of the global energy use. For it to have much of an impact on global climate change, it would have to increase. And I'm just speaking in the immediate term it would have to increase to about 20% of our global energy use. For that to happen, we would need 1,600 new nuclear power plants to come online. That would be three new power plants every month for the next 40 years. 
at the rate that we're going in the United States right now, that's absolutely impossible. There hasn't been a new nuclear power plant open in over a decade, if not longer. So that's a couple of the issues with nuclear power. And the other issue is there are many, many scientists who do not trust nuclear power, and they don't believe that there's a solution for containing the radioactive waste. Radioactive waste is a very grave danger that we have no solution for, and it will be dangerous for hundreds of thousands of years. There's nothing we can create that could contain it for hundreds of thousands of years. And right now, just from the nuclear power that we've already used in the United States, we have 70,000 tons of radioactive waste. That's only from nuclear power. We don't have a solution for this, where we're going to put it, where it's going to be stored. And there are some people who are trying to ram through a quick fix to get it buried somewhere. And <laughs> burying it is not going to make it go away. It's going to get into the water. People have suggested Yucca Mountain. Maybe you haven't heard about that for a few years because it kind of was off the table after about 2010, but there have been new proposals and legislation of trying to restart the licensing process for Yucca Mountain as a permanent repository for radioactive waste. The first and biggest problem with that is that that land of Yucca Mountain does not belong to the United States. It is Western Shoshone land. It was never ceded to the United States. And second of all, there's water. There are seismic faults under that mountain, and the people there do not want it. A lot of them don't, even though there are a few representatives that would gladly take it off of our hands for a few bucks, but most of the people do not want it. The other issue with nuclear power, the waste that's left behind, is that we don't have a place for it to go. However, if any of the proposals to open up either Yucca Mountain or some of the other proposals for some temporary parking lot radioactive waste dumps in New Mexico or Texas, what would happen is it would trigger massive radioactive waste transport across the entire United States. And in Eau Claire, the closest nuclear power plant is Prairie Island, uh, which is just under a couple hours away. And you have other radioactive waste transport that would be occurring through the Twin Cities. People talk about fearing nuclear weapons being the target of a nuclear weapon. Well, we are way more likely to be the victims of a radioactive waste accident, especially in transportation. If any of these proposals pass to start the transportation of the radioactive waste from the nuclear reactors where it's currently being stored to the waste repository, the other thing that it would affect in Wisconsin is this radioactive waste would be transported across Lake Michigan. There would be 435 barge shipments from our nuclear power plants along Lake Michigan to get that to its final place. There's a lot of hand-waving by the government, by the advocates, by the people who are actually making profits on this nuclear power. They don't want us to see the opportunities for danger so I'm very thankful for folks like NukeWatch and other sentinels of our safety and well-being who are getting the information out there so that we can actually make informed, wise decisions. I think NukeWatch does a great job of that. Part of the conversation with Karen Street was alternative energy sources, wind and solar and other things, were not going to be economically feasible to fill in the gap. And actually, since I talked to her, 
that economic situation has completely changed such that currently it's much cheaper to produce energy via solar than it is via nuclear or anything else. So I think that her conclusions maybe even have changed. I probably have to go back to her and ask for an update on that. But the dangers that you highlight in the NukeWatch magazine are so important in that they're suppressed by our national media. Our government suppresses them. They put things on the website and then they take them down. This is particularly important in the age of Donald Trump, where he wants to eliminate the evidence even more strongly than administrations before. And there's been a long history of suppression of information on it. One of the pages of the Nuke Watch Quarterly is called Nuclear Shorts. And so and you talk about the eighth worker exposure this year, Halt's work at Hanford. I didn't see that in the national news. How do you get the information for NukeWatch to be able to get this out? Where is the source of this alternative information, which is really shut down by our national media? We have an email that comes into our inbox every day. We have it set up for Google to send us anything that it finds in news with the tag word nuclear. So that's a a good place to start. But the main source of information is from organizations, our sister organizations that are working on the front lines in nuclear power plant reactor communities or nuclear national lab site area groups, organizations, organizations that are working around where uh, nuclear warheads or parts of the missiles are produced that have organized to oppose them. And so it's a lot of knowing our grassroots organizations and hearing from them what's going on. We also get a lot of information straight from the Department of Energy, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So that's where we get a lot of our statistics We're speaking today for Spirit in Action with Kelly Lundin. She's staff person for NukeWatch, located in Luck, Wisconsin. I'm going to say some more about the organization in just a little bit. But first, I do want to remind you that when you want to follow Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul, the other programs of Northern Spirit Radio, come via our website, northernspiritradio.org. You can hear my interview with Kelly from back in 2007 and my interview with Karen Street mentioned earlier and with other staff people and founders of the Nuke Watch organization. All of that's on northernspiritradio.org and we've, we've got their links to their websites. So if you can't remember nukewatchinfo.org, come by our site, you'll get there. There's also a place to post comments, and we love two-way communication. Communication is so important, and it's so important not to shut it down. And that's, what, in fact, what our national media does, because 90% of our media in the United States is owned by just six corporations. It's a very narrow funnel that our information is coming through, and it only takes a few decision makers to prevent you from having the information. Fortunately, NukeWatch Quarterly and other sources of alternative information are very helpful in enlarging your view and finding out what's really happening in this world. That's why it's so important to support your local community radio station and alternative media. Start by supporting them because without the news, you can't make good decisions. Currently, our national news is not dependable. And that's also maybe why you want to click the donate button when you come to Northern Spirit Radio so you can support us. We're not supported by corporations nor by the government, but by you, the listeners. 
support us and do support NukeWatch as well. You'll find on their site a way to donate to them. And they're doing valuable work for 40 years now, as Kelly has told us. And let's get back to talking about some of those details, Kelly. And again, NukeWatch is opposed not just to nuclear weapons, which is perhaps the primary fear that many of us grew up with. I was born in 1954, and you know we had to do duck and cover under our desks as if our desks at a school were going to protect us from a nuclear bomb. Obviously, that was a fallacy. It was a way to placate the public at the same time that we were supposed to be afraid of our enemies. I see the work of NukeWatch as addressing specifically nuclear power, nuclear weapons, but it's also about countering the idea that somehow a weapon is going to make us safe. I assume that you started from that same point too, Kelly. I mean, you were part of the founders of Just Peace from Chippewa Valley back in 2001. Could you talk a little bit about how this concern about nuclear weapons interfaces with your concerns about militarization in general? As I was speaking before, a general love of humanity and caring for life is where that comes from. How does it get me into this work? I was also given the chance to actually meet people who had survived the Hiroshima bombing, see how they were working for peace. They were working with peace organizations in the United States so that this doesn't happen again. I've met so many people over the years in different movements that have been willing to give so much of themselves to work for peace. And I also see here where we live, people think that we are supposed to be afraid of the enemy, who we are told is the enemy. And yet creating that fear, as you said, in the duck and cover times, instilling that fear inside of us is something that's taking away from us and dehumanizing us. It's dehumanizing us to realize the needs of our neighbors who, because we are spending so much money on nuclear weapons and the military industrial complex in general, we're not able to meet our neighbors' needs. We aren't feeding people. We're always talking about a deficit. And where is that money going? There's never a deficit when it comes to nuclear weapons. There's never a deficit when it comes to a new assassination or another country that we're going to invade. Yet we have people starving. We have homeless people. We have people who don't have adequate health care. We have schools that are suffering from inadequate funding. That would be a real investment in preserving our own humanity in this country. So, Mark, I have not been trained in the military, but just growing up in the United States through our public education system, I always believed that we were somehow smarter, more capable than other people in the world, and that we deserved the things that we have. As I learned Spanish, but not only learned Spanish, but went to Spanish-speaking countries or spoke with people here, Spanish speakers here and learned about them and learned about their countries and their history and their culture, I started to understand that some of them might be smarter than me or smarter than us. And I didn't really learn that in a true way until I was able to have friendships with people who don't speak English. That also helped me as I was living in Colombia to become very close with people who our government considers the enemy. Yeah, it does make such a difference. 
One of the ways of witness that I most respect is the plowshares folks. And I don't think that people even know what happened with the Kings Bay plowshares. They were convicted after just a four-day trial. Could you talk at all about them? I mean, they're from down in Georgia, and I don't know that anywhere in the mass media was their situation dealt with. No. Yeah, the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 on April 4th of the 50th commemoration of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in 2017, they entered the Kings Bay Navy base in Georgia and they poured their own blood onto places where the, the nuclear weapons are stored. This is the largest base of nuclear naval weapons in the world. Now, these people who peacefully, nonviolently did this action are facing probably a couple of years in prison. They just had their trial in October, and they will know their sentence within a couple months. But they were originally facing up to two decades. It's also interesting to me that they come from a religious base. I think these were seven Catholics in the case of the King's Bay Plowshares 7. And even that name, Plowshares, we're supposed to turn our swords into plowshares. And this is saying, well, let's really do it. Let's be faithful in that way. Because a plowshare, that is, say, cultivating, growing food, serves people, whereas a sword only kills people. So I find their religious witness very important to me, especially since in an age where religion is either seen as the fundamentalist Christian edge of the spectrum versus the Catholic worker end of the Catholic continuum or the plowshares activists, people who are saying, people really matter, and we're really called to do something to care for people as opposed to threaten people who are outside of our circle of us. Do you have any idea how many plowshares actions there has actually been, Kelly? I've heard that this most recent one was number 100. The symbolism that they use there, pouring their own blood. Mm -hmm. They're not saying other people should take the risk or other people's lives are at danger. They're saying our lives are at danger. And it's really about caring for us. So I think it's worth getting the winter issue of the Nuke Watch Quarterly just to read that article, which you really see nowhere else. I mentioned I did the interview with David Hartsoe just recently, again, founder of Nonviolent Peace Force and one of the founders of World Beyond War, which is referenced, it's footnoted in one of the articles here in Nuke Watch Quarterly. He's been involved in working on these issues for 60 years, and so he witnesses very directly about the impact of the policies that we've been, he's been fighting for many years. One of the things that he did, he mentions in the interview that I did with him, again, this just a couple weeks ago, is that in 1961, he toured through Russia, just a camping trip with a, a VW minibus, a camping van. He just traveled around on his own. He got the visas to do it, and he could wander around and visit people. And at that time, I was seven-year-old being told to hide under my desk because those evil communists were going to come and destroy us. And he was out there visiting the people. Now, Kelly, you already had the experience, you know, Kelly Lundin spending time in Colombia doing accompaniment. You met the people who were supposedly the enemies of the nation. 
My sense is that when we promulgate policies of first strike, that we're ignoring the humanity of the rest of the world, that if you're outside of the United States, you don't matter. And a lot of people inside the United States don't matter either. So my question for you, Kelly, though, is one of the articles here was about the first strike policy that was posted on the website for the federal government and was taken down right away because the nuclear madness, and that's what it properly should be called, the idea that we could do a first strike and get away with not destroying the world is just insanity. Could you mention a little bit about what happened there? In our recent winter newsletter, Nuke Watch Quarterly, we have an article on page three, Nuclear Madness Still Raving. It just talks about a document that was published online called Nuclear Operations Joint Publication 372. This was in June of 2019, and it was deleted almost immediately after it had been posted. Luckily, it was found and there was a copy of it. But in this manual, it talks about radioactive mass destruction using abstract obtuse euphemism. And this is the way everybody, all of our administrations, talk about nuclear weapons and their use. Every time we hear a new nuclear posture review, they talk about the destruction as if it were a game, a video game we're playing. So in this manual, it says the employment of nuclear weapons could have a significant influence on ground operations. Oh, okay. So would that mean fireballs, vaporized flesh, blast and shockwave devastation? That part of it's not mentioned. It also doesn't mention a nuclear winter, which could easily wipe out a billion people within a few years because of all of the ash that would be raised after a small nuclear weapons exchange. Yeah, there's so many dangers to it. And in that kind of policy, they think about strategy. They think about it as a strategy in a game, but they don't think about real people and the effects on them. Of course, the only thing that makes it acceptable is if you believe that the other people are unreasonable, but you're not. And this is, I wanted to bring up the issue. Just recently, United States attacked a high general in Iran with the danger of starting a world war. And all of this is predicated on the fact that people in Iran should not be able to have the same weapons, the same nuclear power source that the U.S. has and has used. That we're supposed to be afraid of them because they're insane and we're not. But this article that you just read from is part of the sign of the insanity that's happening in our country. So do you know who we're supposed to be afraid of right now? Evidently, it's not Russia because the information I saw out there on the Internet says we have to be worried about Iran because they've got the biggest army that we have to worry about. And evidently, that's not Russia because I think that Putin is Donald Trump's friend. <laughs> well, I would, I would hope that it would be at least one of the, I don't know, more than 10 countries that we are have active military combat going on in. I would hope that, that somebody thinks that they're the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's so many enemies that we're making up here. When I interviewed David Hartzell, uh, one of the things that he did is he, in front of the White House in Washington, D.C., he and other folks were holding a sign saying that nuclear weapons testing kills people. 
and they were having silent Quaker-style worship there. And they got arrested and put in jail because of having that sign in front of the White House. Six months later, he was traveling in Russia, and actually in Moscow, in front of the Kremlin, he held a sign in Russian saying the same thing and handed out leaflets. And they threatened to put him in jail for 20, 30 years. Because of that, they didn't. They said, you should go protest back in the U.S. And he said, well, <laughs> I actually did that. And so I think they decided that maybe he wasn't the threat because he was not seeing the Russians as the enemy. He was seeing the use of nuclear weapons as the problem and nuclear power. What is the prognosis for the United States? At one point, we were actually decreasing at least the number of nuclear weapons. I think that's been reversed. Yeah, that's a good point. So I would like to draw focus to a, a great victory that we do need to consider that we did used to have 61,000 nuclear warheads. Now we're down to 7,000. So 90% of them have been eliminated. And even though we are always focused on the doomsday, generally things have really improved. Originally under Obama, there was a $1.7 trillion National Defense Authorization Act of 2010. That included several different proposals for moderniz- what they call modernization of our nuclear weapons arsenal, which is really upgrading and increasing its power and strength without violating any of the international treaties. So the proposal under President Trump is to charge the U.S. taxpayer $100,000 a minute to expand our nuclear weapons capabilities. So that's taken a big toll on our economy. And I don't know that people realize this. I've been a war tax resistor since 1982. And one of the things I'm very aware of is, while certainly preserving our freedom is important, Most of the expenditures that go to the military do not increase our standard in living or do not even maintain it. Our infrastructure is degraded horribly, while at the same time that we're building new nuclear weapons and expending, as you said, $100,000 per minute on changing the nuclear weapons. What advantage are we supposed to be getting out of this nuclear weapon research and increase in nuclear weapons? What are we supposed to get out of that, according to the administration? They do try and justify it, don't they? (laughs) Um, Of course. Well, we need to be the biggest and strongest and fastest. We are the world's cops. We're the ones who have to be in charge and decide who can have weapons and who can't and and if they don't have them and they want them, we have to make sure that they won't try to get them. It's just to maintain our prestige as they see it. And it's unfortunate because I think it may lead to our demise completely. All the statistics that I've seen say that our standard of living is less than perhaps 12 other nations widely considered, and that's infant mortality, length of life, environmental standards, etc., that we're actually maybe 12th or 17th. It keeps dropping each year (laughs) because we're spending our money on things that do not maintain our standard of life or our well-being. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to come back now, Kelly, and again, folks, for Spirit in Action today, we're speaking with Kelly Lundin, who is staff person for NukeWatch, their website, nukewatchinfo.org, the links on org. 
It's in Luck, Wisconsin, small town. But there's the Anathoth community up there where I think you're hosted for this work. So could you talk a little bit, again, a little bit further about Nuquatch, what it is, I mean, how many staff people, and you said it's been going for 40 years, but you didn't mention the Anathoth community as part of that. And the donations that one would make to Nuquatch are tax-deductible through the Progressive. Could you fill in the details that I left out in that statement? Nuquatch is a project of the Progressive Foundation. That's our 501c3 nonprofit organization. And we are housed on the land trust, the Plowshares Land Trust, home to the Anathoth community, which is also an example of model, example of sustainable living with solar, photovoltaic, energy powered, everything. Our office is powered through solar power. There are extremely innovative farming practices going on here at Anathoth. So that's another project that's really interesting to learn more about. And I did do an interview with Barb Cass way back at the beginning of Norton Spirit Radio. Oh. Back, I don't know, 2005, 2006, I think I spoke with her. And also with Mike Miles, her husband. I've interviewed him over the years. So it's worth checking out Anathoth because I do think that the antidote to much of the fear in, in our society is to have community community gives us something solid and and something that we can grow on and almost all of american culture is breaking down our community bonds we invest ourselves in products and manufacturers and technology but not in people and the way to reverse that is to be involved in community so again kelly i'm going to ask you because of where you live in small town you know when you're living in a place with 1300 people Where do you find community when you're in the midst of Trump country? I find community in my home with my family, uh, with my brothers and sisters who I have struggled with in many organizations over the years and throughout the world. Among the other resources that people will find via nukewatchinfo.org are their action alerts. And I noticed a couple at the top of your list on that page, Kelly. Could you talk a little bit about what's coming up this coming year in terms of these events that Nukewatch is promoting? Yes, there are a lot of things people can become involved in. And one of them in the United States right now, there has been a lot of work to promote the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is a United Nations treaty that was adopted in 2017. And now in the United States, people are promoting it in cities, city councils, states, universities, and obviously among our political leaders. And there's going to be a group meeting in Tennessee from May 22nd to the 25th for the Stop the New Nuclear Arms Race Conference to strategize on how we can continue to promote that United Nations Treaty in the United States, which is obviously, um, well, the United States is not only not signed on to the treaty, but they have actively, they've worked actively against, our administration has worked actively against the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That conference is in Tennessee, May 22nd to the 25th. And Nukewatch also has a campaign in solidarity with a coalition in Germany that is trying to remove the United States nuclear missiles from German soil. Under a NATO sharing agreement, 
There are U.S. nuclear missiles based in five different European countries. Germany is one of them. They do not want them there. These missiles are based there supposedly, obviously, to be a closer to a potential target. The German campaign has asked for solidarity, so the United States peace organizations have been sending a delegation every year for the last, this is our fourth year, Nukwatch is organizing the delegation to Germany to join a peace camp that is based near the Buschel Air Force Base in Germany to oppose those weapons there. They have been very active. Some of the members of the peace camp have actually entered the base, and our very own John LaForge has entered many times. Last year, they beefed up security and added an additional fence, so last year they had to cut through two fences in order to get onto the base. Some other members of the International Peace Camp were able to get onto the actual runway where the bombers do their training and where they would be asked to drop a bomb. So we go in solidarity with that campaign, and this year it's going to be July 13th to the 22nd. So you are welcome to give us a call, join us on that delegation to Germany. Uh, We especially encourage young people, and there are scholarships available for young people and people of color who are interested in joining us in Germany for a couple weeks this summer. You know, Kelly, I just can't believe how fortunate that Nukewatch is that you headed home to your place in northern Wisconsin and that you serve as staff for Nukewatch. I think that they've got a gem, and I hope they realize it, because I certainly do. And I realize that you're a gem in a gem because Nukewatch has been providing such valuable information and energy for opposing things that are life-threatening for so many people, not just in the U.S., but around the world. People tend to think of Chernobyl or Fukushima or Three Mile Island in terms of the nuclear power plants accidents, which have been life-threatening to large numbers of people and actually have resulted in a number of deaths as well. But they don't realize that there are still nuclear power plants scattered all across the U.S., which have their own vulnerabilities. Fortunately, Nukewatch, through Nukewatch Quarterly and your website, nukewatchinfo.org, You get the information out there so people can make an informed decision about those things and also combating that immense danger from nuclear war, especially as we step up and start attacking people within the borders of Iran and Russia or any other country. It's so important, the work that Nukewatch is doing, and they're so fortunate they have Kelly Lundin carrying forth the work with them. Also, my gratitude goes out, of course, to John LaForge, who's been doing it for so many years. So thank you for doing that work, Kelly, and thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. And again, folks, the website, nukewatchinfo.org. It's on northernspiritradio.org. Read up, become informed, and help make our world a better place. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh